All right. It's good to see you guys here in Wellsville. How are you guys doing? Good, good, good. I want to welcome all of our campuses as well as our online viewers. We're glad that you guys are with us as well. We're in our series in the, uh, the book of Ephesians, Paul's letter to the Ephesians. This is part 10, believe it or not. We have five more weeks in this series. My encouragement, keep reading Ephesians. There's so much to get out of it. And uh, today I want to preach a message simply called Walk Your Talk. All right. My talk is about walking your talk. Uh, reminded me as I read this passage of a story a few years ago. This is when we lived in Texas. I was asked by a few gentlemen in our church who were pretty skilled, pretty experienced, pretty good golfers to play in a golf tournament with them. Why? I have no idea. I, like They looked at me and they're like, hey, you're a pretty good golfer. And I'm like, not really. Um, but one of the reasons why I think they asked me to play in this four-person scramble is because I talked a good game, like I knew a little bit about golf. So we, we played in this four-person scramble, which if you don't know what that means, I'm, I'm trying not to bore, with, bore you if you're a golfer, okay? But just stick with me. There's a point to the story. It, uh, in a four-person scramble, the four people hit the ball, and then the next hit, they play the best ball. Uh, we played a four-person scramble. Not once <laughs> did they use my ball, okay? And, uh, but I did get a hole-in-one. I got a hole-in-one. I, I, I got up to the, the, the plate, not the plate, you know what I mean, the ball. And uh, I hit it, and I sliced it so bad. I'm a lefty, and I, I sliced it so bad that it went not on my hole, but on the hole next to it. Not in the, not in the, the ground, but my ball landed literally in a golf cart in a cup holder, which I think, I, personally, this is my opinion, I think that's even more impressive than a hole-in-one, right? Who's going to do that? So I'm pretty good. Um, why am I telling you all this? Well, I'm telling you this because I can tell you a lot about golf. Like, I'm pretty knowledgeable. As a kid, I collected golf cards, and uh, we have literally, because my father-in-law has given us golf sets, we, we've got like three or four golf sets, like golf clubs, and even a lefty set, because I'm lefty, in our little shed. Like, I can tell you which club to use for what shot. I can tell you some of the history. I can even tell you what will get you kicked off of a golf course. Like, I can talk to you about golf etiquette. I can talk to you about golf till I'm blue in the face. Just don't ask me to swing a club, right? In fact, if we were to go golfing, the only thing that you would be impressed with is how high I can count. And some of you got that, because golf, you had to get a lower score. Thank you, Jonathan. Thank you. Courtesy laugh. Everybody's laughing at the other campuses, I know. Um, but so when I go out to golf with these four guys in this, this golf scramble, they were probably really confused, like really confused. They were probably really confused about the disconnect between my knowledge about golf and my ability to play golf, my knowledge and my behavior. In a similar way, we cannot allow as Christians for there to be a disconnect between our behavior and the message we proclaim. If I could say it like this, we can't allow our behavior to be disconnected from the message that we proclaim or the knowledge that we believe in. There has to be alignment. 
Isn't that what we've been talking about in the book of Ephesians? Chapters 1 through 3, Paul has been emphasizing, what is the gospel? Like, what do we believe in? What is our faith in? And then as we turn to to chapter 4, if you were here the last few weeks, and now in chapter 5, and then we're going to go into chapter 6, there's all these practicals about how to live out of this identity. We know who we're in Christ, chapters 1 through 3, and then how are we to live out our faith as a result of knowing Christ? And so as we look at chapter 5, the first 14 verses, Paul is going to hit on this heavy, 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 heavy. If I could put it like this, you've probably heard this phrase before. If we're going to talk the talk, we also need to walk the walk. And so in Ephesians 5, Paul shows us how we are to walk as Christians. I'm going to give you the outline up front, and then we'll talk about each one of these in our passage. He tells us how to walk in love, tells us how to walk in purity and holiness, and he tells us how to walk in in light, how to be the light of the world. So we're going to walk through each of these and see it in our text. The first thing that we see of how to walk is that, number one, we are to walk in love. Uh, If you have your Bibles, go ahead and turn with me to Ephesians 5. Otherwise, you can follow along on the screen at all of our locations. Uh, Ephesians 5 starts off with these words. Therefore, be intimidators, imitators of God as beloved children And walk in love as Christ loved us and gave himself up for us, a fragrant offering and sacrifice to God. Uh, It's interesting that Paul starts off, go back to verse 1 there, Joe. He starts off with this word, therefore, which if you've been here for any length of time, you know that whenever you read the word, therefore, you should ask, what is it? You're listening. It blesses my heart that you listen, right? You should ask, what is it there for? Because of what we just read, now what, right? And so in the context of what we've been studying in Ephesians, remember, this is a letter. This is a letter to the church. There weren't chapter divisions and verse numbers in the original manuscript. It's just a letter. And in the context of the letter, as we looked at last week, Paul has told us, he just got done telling us to take something off, and to put something on, to take off our old self and to put on the new self created to be like Jesus. In other words, take remember, remember last week, take off the fanny pack, take off the fanny pack, which I, I think I offended a few of you, but you know, sorry, you forgive me. You have to forgive me. Okay. But we're to take off the old, put on the new. And if I could summarize the context, it would be in verse 24 of, of Ephesians chapter four, Paul says, take off the old, put, put on the new self created after the likeness of God in true righteousness and holiness. So if I could summarize, we are, if we are in Christ, to look like Christ. If you're in Christ, now that you're a new creation, you were created after the likeness of God. Therefore, therefore, what do we do? In light of that, therefore, Paul says, be imitators. Be imitators of God as Dearly beloved children. So if you're going to say that you're a Christian, you should probably look like a Christian because Christians look like Christ. And as children, we should follow in the footsteps of our Father. It's, if, if I could say it like this, it's hard to claim that you're a child of God when you look nothing like the Father. Right? Now, I got two redheads, so like, you know, sometimes people question that. Um, but typically, you know, like when you're a son or daughter of someone biologically, you, you look like them. You talk like them. You act like them. 
As Christians, we are to be like God. Growing up, my, one of my, my heroes was Michael Jordan. There was a commercial that probably some of you remember if you grew up in the 80s. I want to be like Mike. It was either, I think it was Gatorade, not Wheaties. It was Gatorade, Gatorade commercial. I want to be, I want to be like Mike, like Mike. If I could be like Mike. Remember that, Pastor John? And so I was trying to be like Mike. My whole childhood, I had number 23. I wore that in my JV year. I had the shoes. You know, I had the knee sleeve like Michael Jordan. When I'd go out for layup, I'd you know, stick out my tongue like Michael Jordan. Why? Because I wanted to be like Mike. Well, as Christians, our only pursuit is to be like Jesus. What Jesus is like, what God the Father is like, that is what we are to be like as well because we are to be imitators of God. Again, can't, can't claim to be a child of God if you're not trying to follow in the footsteps of your father. So he gives us two imperatives, two, two um, commands. He says, imitate God as imitators of God. And then he says, walk in love. And the reason why we're to walk in love is because that's what God looks like. In fact, there's two verses I wanted to share with you that kind of frame, I think, what Paul's saying here in Ephesians 5. Um, first, first John 4.16 says this, kind of defines who God is, because you can't imitate someone if you don't know who that person is. So he says, so we have come to know and to believe the love that God has for us. Help me out at all of our locations. Let's say this together. God is love. That's who God is. God is love, and whoever abides in love abides in God, and God abides in him. And so in order to imitate God, you got to know God. And when you know God, you find out real quickly in the scriptures that God is love. And so to be a child of God means to walk in love. Love is such an, it's, it's, love is kind of like one of those terms like hope. Like what is hope? It's so abstract. Love is kind of like that same way in our culture because it means so many different things, especially when the world defines it. But God defines it. And in 1 John 3, 16, this is how God defines it. By this we know love. This is how we know love. That he laid down his life for us, and we ought to lay down our lives for the brothers and the sisters and the family of God. So God is love. God shows us what love is by laying down his life for us, and we should do that same thing for others. And so if we could define what love is, if we're to walk in love, we got to know what it is, right? If we could define what love is, it would be, according to this verse, selflessly seeking the good of others. Walking in love means selflessly seeking the good of others. It's others-focused, which is so counterintuitive when it comes to our culture. Our culture says, me first, me first, focus on me, my wishes, my wants, my needs, and then, if there's leftovers, I'll try to help other people. That's not the way of Christ. The way of Christ is, I mean, where would we be if God just focused on his needs? And he emptied himself. Jesus emptied himself and gave himself for us as a sacrifice so that you and I can have a relationship with God. And so we empty ourselves as Christians out of love to focus on other people. What does that look like? Like, individually, what does that look like for you and me as we try to walk in love? I think one of the things that it looks like is be present with people. Like, be, be aware of people's needs to the point where you're close enough to hear their needs, and then you step in and meet those needs, however you can. It might be financial meeting of those needs. It might just be a, a relational need. You, you lend a, a crying shoulder, a listening ear. You're present with them. But you're, you're saying, whatever capability I have to help meet another person's need, my yes, my yes is literally on the table. God... You have my yes. My yes is on the table so that whatever needs that I come across today, I am available. 
I've told you before that one of the greatest prayers that you can pray when you wake up in the morning is say, Lord, I'm available. I'm available. When I go to the gym, I'm available. If you want to put someone in my path that needs to hear, to hear the love of God or experience the love of God, I'm available. At my workplace, I'm available, God. Whatever you want, I'm available for you to bless someone in need because I'm others Focus. You know, as a church, one of the things that we do, and we share this from time to time, and I think it's very helpful for you to know, is we have a, a fund that's uh, called the Helping Hands Fund, literally, where people can give um, outside of the budget, general offering, people go give specifically to this fund to help meet needs of individuals, both in our church and our community. And over and over again, what we're hearing is people who might have needs with paying their bills or their gas bills or rent bills. Just yes, two days ago, we had someone, um, our, one of our pastors, hear about a need, a single mom uh, in the church who's going through some really, really difficult medical stuff, has a son who's trying to take care of. They don't have money for food. And guess what? Because of your generosity, people giving towards that Helping Hands Fund, where you're able to say yes. Our yes is on the table. We were able to step in and meet that need. That's one example of, I don't make those decisions. Our campus pastors oversee the Helping Hands Fund. And I see almost probably two, two, two at least a week, two or three times at least a week, where someone hears about a need and we're able to, as a church, collectively step in and meet those needs. That's awesome. But that's all of us. What about individuals? Like, how do, we, how do we literally be the hands and feet of Jesus so we're walking in love towards one another? I guarantee if you start leaning into that conversation, God will reveal someone that you can bless financially, relationally, emotionally. You can step in and meet that need. Maybe it's helping them move. Maybe it's making a meal for them. Small groups are great for that. You hear about a need. Someone had a baby. Someone's sick. You do a meal train. You provide needs for the, for the body of Christ because that's what it means to be the body of Christ, and that's what it means to walk in love. God, uh, Paul says that's what we do. We imitate God, and you can't imitate God unless you're selflessly seeking the good of others. So that's the first one. Number two and number three I want to spend a little bit more time on today. i got to be honest. i got like three sermons today. That's like a no-no in preaching world. But I got, I'm just telling you up front, i got three sermons, and we got a lot to talk about. But there's 14 verses it's 14 verses. We can, talk, we can talk a little bit today. Here's number two. Number two is we walk in purity. Number two is we walk in purity. Look at what verses three through six say. Ephesians chapter five, verses three through six. Uh, I, I, hey, before I share these verses, um, each campus pastor in their own little form and, and ways, they put out a notice and maybe even said it in the service. Um, but we're going to talk about some sensitive stuff today, parents, um, specifically sex. You'll see that in the passage. I'm not going to get vulgar. I'm, I'm not going to, we're not going to go into a lot of detail. So you, I think you're okay if you so choose to keep your kid in. But if you want to take the opportunity now to check them in because they're not ready, you might want to do that. I'm just letting you know up front. You can go ahead and do that. And um, our kids' own directors might be ready to check people in. Wink, wink, right? Okay. Here we go. Uh, Verse 3. But sexual immorality in all impurity or covetedness must not be named among you as is proper among saints. Let there be no filthiness, nor foolish talk, nor crude joking, which are out of place, but instead let there be thanksgiving. For you may be sure of this, that everyone who is sexually immoral or impure or who is covetedness, that is an idolater, has no inheritance in the kingdom of Christ in God. 
Let no one deceive you with empty words, for because of these things, the wrath of God comes upon the sons of disobedience. Paul says this, this phrase, um, but sexual immorality and all impurity or covetous must not even be named among you. Um, I, I don't know about you, but I kind of ended the sermon, just my own personal walk, exhausted last week. As I told you to do five clothing changes, five, you know, take off this, put on this. And through our own strength, we can't do that. Like, we just are going to fail. So I challenge you to pick one thing, one article of clothing to take off, one article of clothing to put on. Now, Paul goes to chapter five, and it's like, well, let me throw on three more, okay? And so we get three more that Paul throws on here, and I'm going to work backward. Covetedness, um, that's another term for greed, uh, greed, wanting wealth, material possessions of this world, not being content with what you have, but always looking for more. He says that that shouldn't really be among God's people. That's not really characteristic as being an imitator of God. Um, it's interesting in verse 5, he links that word with the term idolater. Uh, idolatry, if you don't know, is anytime you take something, even something good, like a gift from God, and place it above God. Like it takes on new priorities and new focus in your life that a good thing can actually become a bad thing when it replaces God in your life. That's what idolatry means. And so having that covetous heart is literally just an over-desire, an over-desire. It's a reprioritizing of things of this world over and above God. And Paul says, no, 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 can't have that. And then he gives you two more things. And these two things are closely related all impurity and sexual immorality. That term sexual immorality is in the Greek, the word pornea. Okay, probably heard of that. And it's, it's mentioned 26 times in the New Testament. Why do I mention that? Because it's not just Ephesians, the Ephesians, the church at Ephesus that Paul is saying, hey, this is a big problem. This sexual immorality thing is a big problem. What he's saying all throughout the New Testament is it's a problem for the Corinthians, the Philippians, everybody. And if that's true then, don't you think this is relevant now? I mean, when we read these verses, two things come to mind. I want to be very sensitive um, to people listening to this message um, for, for, for a couple of reasons. One, every single one of us has baggage. We all have, we all have things in our past that we regret, me included. That, that we've brought into our relationship with God. And, and I know that when we read passages like this, it can get really, really heavy real quickly. And you bring that shame into the church. and you, I just don't want you to leave here feeling beat up. That's not the point of this message. I also know there's probably, there's got to be, five campuses that we have, all these services, people watching online, there's probably some people listening to this message who perhaps you're not... You're not feeling the weight of your sin. You're feeling the weight of someone else's sin because you were the victim of someone else's sin. Maybe it was sexual harassment or sexual abuse. So when you, when you hear these words, I'm very well aware, church, that this is, this is heavy content. And yet, it's very timely content. It's very relevant content. If this was an issue back in the church in Ephesus, which I don't know if you know the context, they literally had a temple to the... the the lowercase g god Artemis. And they had all these 
priests and um, people at the temple as prostitutes. And that was literally the culture. That's what you did. It was kind of like going to the baseball game. Like this, there was so, that, that culture was so hyper-sexualized. And Paul says, if you're going to imitate God, you can't look like the world like that. And if we're going to imitate God now, the crude joking, the, you know, that, that's what she said jokes, the, 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 the things that are not good for the, the people of God to imitate, that's got to be gone. We can't pursue that anymore. And, and so um, I think we should talk about it. Let's talk about sex today. What does God and his word have to say about sex? Um, I think one of the things that the Bible teaches us is that sex is a good thing. Sex is a good thing given to us by God to be enjoyed by one man, one woman, one woman within a covenant relationship in marriage. Anything outside of sex, outside of one man, one woman through a covenant relationship called marriage is not of God. It's taking a good thing and distorting that good thing. And so while I would say sex is a good thing, like all good things, sex can be distorted. All good gifts can actually be distorted. So how is sex distorted in our culture? Um, let me give you a few, few, few things to think about. Number one is adultery, right? Um, pornography, polygamy, believe it or not, homosexuality, heterosexual sin, premarital sex, and then sexual abuse and harassment. So you see how one, one good thing, right? One good gift is taken by our culture and says, let's have fun with that. And it distorts something that is beautiful, that's supposed to be enjoyed by God's people, and makes it into something that it is not. And by the way, I've seen almost every one of those literally destroy families. As a, I've been a pastor 14 years now. I'll never forget the first year I was a pastor. Having, I was like 29 years old, having no idea what I was doing. I get a call one day from a couple who the wife cheated on the husband in just the most unbelievable way. They're no longer a part of our church, no longer following Christ. I don't know what happened to the kids. They're just, it's a, it was a mess. And I cried, and I cried, and I cried, and I cried, and they cried, and they cried. It, and it never was restored. It was just broken, brokenness. So we, like, we think we're having fun, right? We think it's fun until you have to deal with the brokenness. And then you find out real quickly that God's plan is so much better than the world's plan. Because the world sells you sex. It looks good, and it looks sexy, and you start dipping your toes in it, and all of a sudden you have to deal with the consequences of it that they don't tell you, and then you have to deal with all that. And thankfully for God, there's grace and forgiveness, and there's stories of hope and redemption that we've seen. Praise God for that. But it, you still got to go through the pain. And so there's a, there's a lot of things in life that you and I will regret. Obeying Jesus is not one of them. Obeying Jesus is not one of them. When you truly embrace God's gift the way it was given, it's a beautiful thing. When you distort it, you mess with it, it leads to all kinds of, of problems. So let's 
I know, I know this is hitting some, some people, but let's say that you are struggling with this. What do you do? Say you are really struggling with some of those areas that we just talked about. What do you what do? You do? I think you bring it to God, right? You, you follow the biblical pattern of finding freedom. What is that? You confess that sin. What does the Bible say? God is faithful and just to forgive you of your sin and cleanse you from all unrighteousness. He's faithful. But if you continue to leave it in the dark, what happens in the dark is it grows, it becomes moldy and disgusting, and it poisons your life. But when you bring it out to the light in confession, not only does God forgive, but you confess it to other people, not to receive forgiveness for them, but when you bring it out to the light, you find healing. You get forgiveness and you get healing through confession. And then you repent. Repent literally is a word where you're you're literally running after sin and you say, wait, that's not imitating God. I'm going to turn and I'm going to run to Jesus. And you do exactly what Jesus told the woman caught in adultery to do. When everybody was about, if you know the story, there's a bunch of men about to stone this lady because that was the law for committing adultery. And Jesus says, let he who is without sin throw the first stone. And every single stone dropped. And you remember what Jesus says right after that? He looks at the woman. He says, go and sin no more. That's what repentance is. It's a confession. It's a turning from sin. And it's running to Jesus. If you want to find freedom, you got to do that. You got to confess. You got to repent. You got to run to Jesus. And oh, by the way, you do this every single stinking day. This is not a one time thing. Our, our battle against temptation and the sin in us is in every day putting on the armor of God, confessing, repenting, running to Jesus. And when you do that, you'll find grace. You won't find a Savior that's there to belittle or berate you. You won't find a Savior that's there to condemn and judge you. If you are in Christ, if you are in Christ, there is now no condemnation. But you got to get rid of that. you got to get rid of that. And here's, here's why this is so important. Paul actually lists, if you're reading in the passage with me, two things that are really, really critical to understand that tell you what's at stake when we talk about sexual immorality. The first is seen in verse 5. He says, what's at stake is entr- literally entrance into God's kingdom. Remember reading that verse 5, for you may be sure of this, that everyone who is sexually immoral or impure, that is their whole life is characterized by pursuing the things of this world, including sex. Like that's, how, that's who's, what their identity is. He says, um, has no inheritance in the kingdom of Christ and, and God. Now to be clear, You being sexually pure before marriage, you being sexually pure after marriage, you being sexually pure in your mind, thought, and deed does not in any way grant you access to the kingdom of God. We are not saved by our good works or our purity or our ability to remain pure. If we were, Jesus did not have to come. I want to be clear on that. But what Paul is saying here is that you are, quote, a son or daughter of disobedience. In other words, You're not reflecting or imitating the father. Namely, you're not even in the family. Like you're you're not adopted into the family. You have a different family identity. You're sons of a disobedience. Your, Your heart's desire is not to pursue God and to love God with your heart. Christians, though, stumble. Christians, though, sometimes make mistakes, but their heart is to honor their father. They're grieved when it happens and they turn to Jesus. If you're here today, 
and you have you're, you you just you just are hell bent on doing life your own way and enjoying sex your own way, defining it the way you want to, and you have no regard to what God's word says. That's your warning today. There will come a day when the door's going to be shut in your face, and it's not going to be good. Paul warns you out of a pastor's heart because he loves you, and I love you enough to say that too. The second thing in verse 6 that we see that's at stake is that the wrath of God will fall on that person's head. Listen to what he says in verse 6. Let no one deceive you with empty words. That's why today's message is critically important. I hope you get the point that I'm not just fluffing it up, and you'll hear a, a much nicer message when you know Monday morning and Tuesday, but you're going to hear a hard message today because we don't want to give you empty words. For because these things, the wrath of God comes upon the sons of disobedience. So that's why what we're talking about is so incredibly important. If you're carrying sin into your present, like you're you're carrying your past and you're continuing to pursue this issue of sin. And one of the reasons is because you can't shake the identity that's been created because of past choices. Like literally, and I've, I've, heard, I've heard so many people like this, I can't make that the best decision, the right decision, because it's, it's almost like that's part of my identity. And the reason why it's part of my identity is because I don't think that anyone could ever love me. Like who would accept me because of what I've done? Who would love me because of what I've done? Can I just tell you, Jesus will love you. Like when you run to Jesus, he will forgive you. You will have forgiveness and grace. You won't have condemnation. Like if you go towards him, he'll forgive you. And hopefully everybody else that knows Christ around you will forgive you as well and treat you like Christ treats you in your sin. But you got to go. Secondly, if you're the victim, the other thing I want to say, if you're a victim of someone else's sin, can I just remind you that that sin is not on you? What they did to you was not what you chose. That was a sin that was directly put on you. That, that sin does not define you. And it should not be a part of your identity either. You can even bring that to Jesus and find healing and grace. There's forgiveness. There's healing. There's grace when we bring what is sinful to the light and walk in purity. Now, that's us. Like, we're talking like Christian to Christian, right? The reason why we should talk about this in other terms is because at some point during your week, this, this type of conversation will come up. Or you'll be living next to someone. Maybe your neighbor thinks differently about these subjects than you do. How do you engage with a culture that thinks so different than what we believe in as Christians when it comes to sexual purity, when it comes to the issue of homosexuality, when it comes to the issue of um, honoring the, the marriage bed, and when it comes to issues of, um, uh, of not having premarital sex, all these issues, right? What do you do with a culture that thinks so incredibly different than you on this? Well, I think one of the, the keys... The secrets of this passage is what Paul says in this phrase. He says that these things must not be named among who? You. Who's you? Who's you? The church. That tells me two things, and I think it's critical, church, that we get this. Number one is this. Nowhere in this passage does God call us or tell us to place a moral code on the world that does know Jesus. 
So if you got a relationship with someone that's a, that's a non-Christian, that's great. But if you're expecting them to act like a Christian, I got news for you. They're not a Christian. Like the reason why they don't imitate God and look like God and believe the same things, same things that you do about God and follow God's word is because they're not a Christian. And nowhere in the Bible does it tell us to take this book and to place it over someone else's head that doesn't know Jesus and expect them to think the same way or act the same way as we do. That's not in there. Second thing that, that, that I think Paul is saying is, is that God does not say to disassociate with sinners. Think about that. Nowhere in this passage or in the, in the New Testament does God say, in order for you to walk in purity, you better become a monk and get away from this wicked world. Otherwise, you're just going to stumble into sin. And there's, he doesn't say that. In fact, this is what Paul says to the church at Corinth, which I've already told you before is probably a mess, more messed up church than Ephesians. Um, but he, here's what he says in, in 1 Corinthians chapter 5. He says, I, I wrote to you in my letter not to associate with sexually immoral people. Now, what, what are we saying, Pastor? I, just ta- I thought you just said, you, it doesn't say to disassociate, but Paul just says not to associate but look what Paul says in the very next verse. He, he defines what he means by associate with the world. He says, not at all meaning, so he qualifies himself, not at all meaning the sexually immoral of this world or the greedy and swindlers or idolaters. Does that list sound familiar? It's what we just read from Ephesians 5. Since then, you would need to go out of the world. Like, if your goal is to get walk in purity to the point where you're never around people who think different or act different or believe different than you, then here's your plan. Rent a space shuttle and go to Mars because it ain't going to happen, including your kids. It ain't going to happen. In, in, in your life, if your goal is to, to get away from all that stuff and never have to interact with it, it's not going to happen. And so when Paul says don't associate What he's saying is very similar to what he says in verse 7, which we're going to read in a second. He says, do not become partners. He doesn't want us to become partners. Partnership means that you're not just in the vicinity of, but you're actively actively engaging in that sin yourself. You're participating with them. And so we have to associate, right? We have to associate as we engage with this topic with the world We have to do what Jesus does. What does Jesus do? He eats with all sinners, including the people who were sexually immoral. He associated with with all of them. And so I I think that the church has erred in two ways. One way we err is that we we actively permit and um, accept the things that God tells us not to do. We allow things that God's word is clear on that we just looked at and we don't take it seriously. We, we permit those things. The other, the other area I think that we've erred on as a church is that we so disassociate with people whose sin looks different than our sin. Don't you see that? I remember years ago, you'll probably remember, years ago, I had a conversation with a brother in Christ, Christian brother, who's living um, together with, uh, someone who wasn't his wife, and you know, there's reasons for that. It was kind of an issue years ago that we've had we had in our church, and um, it was okay 
for that to happen, but when it came to homosexuality, um, you know, lesbian relationships, that was not okay. Like if somehow, some way, we created two categories. Like I'm okay to hang out with this group of sinners, but I'm not okay to hang out with this group of sinners. Is that what, is that what God teaches? I'm pretty sure all sin put Christ on the, on the cross. And so we err in the sense that we create these categories and we rate people based on their sin. How disgusting is that? So um, years ago, I think it's okay to share, but years ago, um, Aaron was talking to a lesbian couple in the community, and um, they were asking her about the church and, you know, what it, tell them, they were telling her about, like, this is our situation. Would it be okay to, you know, attend the church? And, and Aaron said, well, let me get you in touch with, with Jeremy to kind of answer your question. So they sent an email, and in the email, essentially, they were telling me their story and their situation, but they asked, would we feel welcomed at your church? You know what my response was? Crosstown, you know what my response was? Yes. Yes. Everyone is welcome to come as you are, but I'll tell you up front, you should not leave here the same way. When you engage with the scripture and you interact with the gospel, it will transform you in all areas of sin. And so you treat them with respect. You treat them with kindness and compassion. You don't engage in these cultural wars that are notorious on Facebook. Everybody's got to make a Facebook post. You got to make a Facebook post about what you... And in Greece, in Rochester, we got yard signs. We don't have just Facebook. We got yard signs, right? Maybe. I'm just spitballing. Maybe. Just Maybe. God in this passage is telling us to put away the Facebook posts and put away the yard signs and invite your neighbor over for dinner. To treat him with kindness and compassion without compromising truth, leading them to the light of Jesus so that they would experience the same hope that you have. Right? Our, our war is not to engage in a cultural war because our war has already been won the greatest battle that you and I have is not the sin in this world. It's not. It's actually the sin in us. And if you got serious about the sin in you, and we got serious about the sin in here, like among us, because Paul says, and, and, and God says, we're not, not judge the world. We're actually to judge each other, meaning hold each other accountable to what God's word has said. But our job is not to judge the world. Our job is to love the world. And the way we love the world is by being pure ourselves. Is that messy? Yeah, it's incredibly messy. And I can't tell you where the line is between affirming someone's sin and loving people where they're at. I really can't tell you the line. I th we've thought and had conversations, but if you were to come after, to, uh, up to me after church and tell you, well, what about this situation? I was like, I don't know for sure, but here's what I know. If we don't engage with a culture whose sin might look different than we do, you'll never know where that line is, and they will never see the light of the gospel. So we're going to welcome all and preach truth and trust God, right? Which should lead to this third point. I told you I've got, I've got three sermons. Here's the third. Number three is to, we're to walk in light. So we're to walk in love who we are in Christ. We're children of God, and we're, to, we're supposed to imitate God in love. That's who we are. We're to walk in purity and, and holiness because as children of God, that's what children of God do. But there's a result of that. 
when you walk in love and you walk in purity, there will be a result of that. And that is you will walk in light and others will see the light. Look at what Paul says in verses 7 through 14. He says, therefore, again, what is that therefore? There's an implication of what we just read. Therefore, do not become partners. In other words, participators, right? With them. For at one time you were darkness, but now you are light in the Lord. Walk as children of light. For the fruit of light is found in all that is good and right and true. And try to discern what is pleasing to the Lord. Take no part in the unfruitful works of darkness, but instead expose them. For it is shameful even to speak of the things that they do in secret. But when anything is exposed by the light, it becomes visible. For anything that becomes visible is light. Therefore, it says, I love this phrase, awake, O sleeper, and arise from the dead, and Christ will shine on you. When we walk in light, the end result is darkness is exposed. Walking in light simply means doing what Paul's just said, walking in love and walking in obedience, walking in love and walking in purity. Think about that. When Christians walk in love, Jesus said, they will know you're my disciples when you love one another. And when you walk in purity, they will see such a difference that they'll actually believe what you claim. I can tell you I'm a really good golfer. As soon as I take that five wood out and it goes, you'll know that I'm not a good golfer. Church, why in the world would someone listen to the message of Jesus that we proclaim with our lips when they can't see Jesus with our lives? Car lovers, would you buy a Chevy from a Ford dealership? You wouldn't. Would you buy what a Christian is selling when their life is not aligned with the very words that they're proclaiming? You wouldn't. So that light is diluted. But when you walk in love the way that Jesus loved you, and when you walk in holiness, and you show up when someone is in great need and they're in darkness, you know what happens when light shows up into darkness? Darkness goes away. Darkness literally can't be in the presence of light. That's how we expose darkness. We don't get on Facebook with our megaphones. The number one way that we expose darkness is by living in light ourselves. And when we're present in the community, I'll say this, our greatest witness to this world is our obedience to Christ. Our greatest obedience to the world is our, our witness to the world is our obedience to God. And when they see that we're honoring God and we're living for God, something amazing happens. Their life is impacted. And here's why I know that's true. At some point in your life, you were the sleeper. And God whispered to your soul through someone's light. One of his children, one of his children, one of his light that came into your life when you were in complete darkness. And he said, awake. And God lit you up. And because of that, we need to be the light for those who are in darkness. It's the way of God. We walk in love. We walk in purity. We walk in light. Let no one deceive you. For at one time you were darkness. Now you're light. You notice how Paul doesn't say, at one time you were kind of a roughed up kid. You just made some, you were just stupid when you were a teenager. Like, 
And, but now you've learned and you've grown, you've picked yourself up by your bootstraps and you've made yourself into a... He doesn't say that. He actually says you were something, now you are this. There was a transformation in your life. You were darkness, you were dead, now you're light. That's why when you and I engage with a world that doesn't know Jesus, the goal is not to get them to be a better person. They're dead, just like you were dead. They're sleeping. The goal is not to impose a moral code on them. The goal is for you to deal with your own sin and walk in light so that others can see the light and respond and wake up. Our world is sleeping. They're sleeping. Some of you are sleeping. God is saying, wake up. Live a life of purity and love so that others can see our great God. So two applications, and we're going to close. Number one, skip ahead, Joe. Number one is, uh, keep going. I want you to ask this question, am I pleasing the Lord? One of the great questions that a mentor, a ministry friend of mine is asking, he's been asking, he's asking us when we meet together once a month, is, is what I'm doing pleasing God? Paul said that in this passage. Discern whether or not you're pleasing God. Every single day when we wake up is what I'm about to participate in, planned or unplanned. What I'm doing with my life, is that pleasing God? And if it's not pleasing God, confess, repent, run to Jesus. And then, and then secondly, am I close enough to someone who is far from God? Some of you are, some, some of you are not even close enough to let your light shine. You're good. Like, through God, he's changing you, but you're not even close enough to someone's darkness. So how in the world will they ever see light if you're a mile away? Engage with them. Is it going to be messy? Sure it is. But God entered into your mess, and he entered into my mess. So we engage with a culture that is dark, but you've got to, get, you've got to be intentional to invest in someone who doesn't know Jesus and invite them to know about the gospel. That's all I got. I, I'm ending my three sermons, all right? I'm going to invite the worship teams to come forward, and uh, we're going to close in worship, and uh, here in Wellsville, we're going to celebrate communion. Father, thank you so much for your word. Um, the call for us to be pure, to, to be loving, to, to literally be children who imitate our Father. And so we ask through the power of the Holy Spirit that we would look more and more like you through love and purity so that others can see the light. Help us shine the light. Help us intentionally engage with a culture that does not look like you, think like you, or talk like you, or, or, or us. And help us show grace to those who need it. Thank you so much, Jesus, for waking us up when we were asleep. I pray that those who are a little bit draggy today would not just claim something with their lips, to not be confusing where there's a disconnect between what they say and what they, what the, the knowledge that they have, but their, their behaviors and their actions would be aligned with what they say. And it's in Jesus' name we ask this. Amen.